Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Okay, today we're going to take a deep dive into the wide world of mycology and fungi with Peter McCoy, the author of Radical Mycology and founder of MycoLogos a new online educational platform for courses on mushroom and fungal cultivation and knowledge. Now, Peter has been studying mycology for more than 16 years and is one of the foremost educators and promoters on the potential of fungi. In this interview, we explore some of the many practical and exciting applications of mycelium, such as building healthy soil, reviving contaminated sites and polluted ecosystems, medicine and nutrition, transforming waste products, and even biological batteries. Now, Peter is a wealth of information and does a remarkable job of making the deep and intricate world of mycelium approachable and easy to understand for the layperson, a category that I certainly fall into. So I hope this episode inspires you and opens your mind to the incredible potential of fungi like it did for me. So I'll hand things over now to Peter McCoy. Hey, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great in the new year. Yeah, happy to be here. Fantastic. Where are you right now? Uh, I am in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. Oh, fantastic. I used to live there myself, but it's been quite a few years since I visited. How is the winter going so far? Um, You know, it's actually been a pretty mild weather uh, winter. The weather's been a little bit of cold here and there, some rain, but not not as much as normal. Um, And today is actually fairly kind of mild, so it's it's been nice, not too harsh. Well, hey, I've got a ton of things that I'd love to ask you, and the world of mycology is a broad one. So what do you say we jump right into the questions? Yeah, sounds great. All right, so let's get started with uh, having you tell us a little bit about your background. How did you become fascinated with the world of mycology and fungi? So I've been, um, I got hooked on mycology, as with most people, as soon as I learned about it. Um, But unfortunately, that didn't come till a little bit later in my life than I might have hoped. Uh, Rather than learning about them in elementary school or something, I only got turned on because my brother told me that you can grow mushrooms uh, when I was a teenager. And just the notion that you could do that was really alluring to me because I knew nothing about them as kind of most people I've ever met. I didn't learn anything about them. My family didn't know anything. Um, But just the notion that you could grow these things uh, seems so strange. And that just appealed to my kind of personality and I'm interested in, you know, odd things like that or something. So I just went to the library and got books to learn about it. And then as soon as I started reading about what the process is like, 
uh, I got fascinated by fungi themselves because they are so interesting. And uh, so then I started trying to grow and pretty much was hooked right then at, at about 15, 16. I forget exactly when. Um, and it's pretty much stuck with me ever since. And over the, all the years, I've just read so much and I've studied so much now and done quite a bit and met quite a number of people doing all kinds of things in mycology and really everything I learn, everything I do, everything I see other people doing in the world of, of this fascinating topic uh, just keeps me more and more inspired. Um, it's sort of an, an endless life pursuit um, and one that really has so much unknown to it, which is another reason it keeps me interested because there's so much more to uncover uh, and really anybody can do that. So, um, and that's something I've picked up when I was a kid, didn't quite have all those, that realization but just the fascination was there pretty quickly. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm really starting to find that myself. I'm very much a newcomer to this world of study, but um, I've seen you know videos, read books that really start to touch on the breadth of how broad this field of study can actually be applied, not just in an academic sense, but really practical applications. And we'll get into those in just a minute. Now, I know you've been studying the world of fungi for well over a decade now. What have been some of the biggest breakthroughs and discoveries that have been made since you got into the world of mycology yourself? Um, I think, well, that's there's quite a lot because really in the last, say, two decades, um, you know, I've been studying for about 16 years, so about as long, but really it's with the technology and, and a lot of stuff with genetics um, and DNA, DNA research, we've been able to uncover a good bit more. And then really as the, the field has become more popular, um, and steam has really picked up around it in the last decade, especially there's so much that's come. And so it's, it's really an explosive time for the science and so much that we're uncovering, um, kind of out, you know, outsteps the, the last thing we, we found. Um, I think some of the things that are most, you know, and it's really hard for me to pick, uh, there's sort of two major branches I, the, uh, of how I look at mycology or, or sort of importance and implications. One major field is just the environmental and ecological effects and influences of fungi and how we are increasingly realizing them to be critical and central to so much of life. Whereas, you know, even 50, 40 years ago, they were recognized for decomposition or something. And, and that was about it. Whereas now we see that they are uh, so integral to plant health and increasingly in animal health in many ways. And, and I really see them, uh, as central to so much of life, which is a quite a big paradigm shift and the one that's being increasingly supported through a lot of the research. So it's sort of a, a broad uh, realization, but one that's I think quite profound and it's sort of supported by so many small steps that have come along the way. And then the other major branch is just, the, as you said, the, the practical applications of not only cultivating mushrooms and, you know, for food and medicine, which has been done for, you know, centuries really. Um, but now we're realizing that that fungal, uh, tissue, fungal mycelium, as we call it, as as uh, as a unique sort of substance, if you will, tissue uh, organism form on Earth that we can actually work with that to say create building materials. And really, that's this quite large topic that uh, is very exciting. We're really just scratching the surface of, and there's there's an increasingly uh, perceived notion that just as plastic revolutionized our reality. 100 years ago when it was invented, that perhaps growing things with fungal tissue or mycelium will, will have a similar effect on, on society, on civilization, and that in 100 years, 
just as so much of our world today is made out of plastic, perhaps in another hundred, so much of our day-to-day existence will be fungal-based or mycelial-based from our building materials to the, the, the furniture we use, um, insulation in our homes, perhaps even the paneling that builds our homes, and perhaps even our clothing or, or certain tar- parts of our uh, apparel will be made out of fungal tissue. Um, you know, it's really a, incredible in that sense. Um, and then there's the other applications one that got me perhaps the most excited or reinvigorated when I was about 20, um, after having just been interested in fungi sort of more topically or for just cultivation and sort of the intrigue, when I learned about the ability of fungi to clean up pollution, that's what really re-sparked my interest because at the time I was becoming increasingly uh, invested in and and really engaged in environmental issues and learning all about that and sort of taking – you know, full full authorship or ownership of my place in those types of uh, issues in the world and realizing, wow, fungi can actually help address and perhaps even alleviate some of the pollution issues in the world. And, you know, that was one of the things that really compelled me to become more engaged in the, the field and actually eventually soon thereafter, really a year or two later, I started teaching these things what I knew as I started to realize that other people wanted to learn it as well. Um, and that topic, microremediation as we call it, is huge there's a lot of potential there but again um it's so new and really we have a lot of good evidence in the lab that fungi can say break down all kinds of toxic chemicals and even plastics and things but we've yet to come to the stage uh yet to to apply this in the real world to to on broad scales um and my hope and and the hope of many people is that that time will come in the not, not too distant future and and we can really work with fungi and bacteria and plants to uh, dramatically increase the health of our environment and have a lot of personal benefits, you know, beyond that as humans um, in, in a myriad of ways. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The more that I'm learning about this, I'm starting to see these broad applications. And for that reason, let's kind of take a focus on that second branch that you mentioned. I would love to talk about some of the most practical and exciting applications of mycological discovery, kind of one by one. So let's start with how mycelium can help to build soil and work with plants for the better health of a whole ecosystem. Well, yeah, so there you're, you're sort of bridging the two, those two major branches because it gets into a real understanding and appreciation of their ecological roles and, and incorporating that into a holistic, you know, land and soil management regimen. Um, whereas I think, you know, really historically and even still contemporarily, a lot of books and a lot of um, programs don't have a good enough emphasis in my opinion, on the importance of fungi, especially in soil. And I think that that, again, largely comes from, you know, lack of access to information, lack of awareness, lack of um, sort of community dialogue. And, you know, it's sort of, nobody's been really saying that fungi are super important. And so it's sort of been missed as a point. And so um, just greater advocacy around that will, will increase the awareness because they are, as I said a moment ago, you know, so important to so much of life, but especially in soils. Um, you know, we, Soil is a black box, and there's a lot we don't understand about, a lot we can't study, a lot of the microbes we cannot culture, both fungal and bacterial and otherwise, in the lab. So there's there's quite a lot we'll perhaps never be able to fully understand, of course. Um, but what we do know about soil fungi is that certain classes of them are, are incredibly important. And perhaps the best studied and arguably some of the most important are, are a large group known as the mycorrhizal fungi. And these fungi 
form uh, intimate associations with plant roots where fungus will wrap around and penetrate into the, the root tips um, and sort of form like a barter system, if you will, between the plant and the fungus, where the plant provides photosynthesized sugars primarily to the, to the fungus. In exchange, the fungus grows out quicker, more rapidly, and with greater surface area because its, it's threads of, of tissue, again known as mycelium, are very thin, so it has a high surface area. And it can acquire through all that surface area nutrients and water and minerals and provide that to the plant. Uh, these these fungi, they're, they're broken into several subtypes, but they sort of all perform this as their, one of their primary roles. Um, certain types will actually bridge between different families and, and hold different uh, types of plants in, a, in an intact ecosystem and, and literally transmit nutrients between uh, different types of species and different types of plants and really manage the, the, the ecosystem in, in many ways. Uh, if you will. Um, and then on top of that, I think one of the most important things to recognize in this regard is that fungi in soils and elsewhere uh, perform great feats, if you will, in the in the realm of chemical transformation. My friend likes to say, and I always quote him, that fungi are nature's greatest chemists. And that really they do so much in the realm of chemistry that plants, bacteria, and, and animals just really can't compare with. And, and this is especially true in soils and with these mycorrhizal fungi where they can go out and through the release of digestive enzymes and, and certain acids, they can release and, and transform minerals and nutrients in the soil and provide that in a soluble way, in a soluble form to the plant in a way that the plant never could because the plant never evolved the need to do that. By and large, most plants rely on bacteria and fungi to, to provide them with their, their appropriate nutrients. Um, and so... In soil systems, you know, in farms and even gardens and things, generally we we have lost quite a, a lot of fungal diversity um, through tillage, through chemical inputs, through compaction, and there's there's various ways to try to bring these fungi back. And some of the most practical and, and easiest ways is just to buy inoculum, uh, meaning buy the spores. And, and this is increasingly common these days as awareness has grown around mycorrhizal fungi. Um, so there's various products on the on the market. Now, I can't necessarily recommend one over the other. What I can unfortunately say is that many independent studies have been done with some products or quite a number of these products, most of them, and some of the some of the more questionable ones tend to have much lower spore counts than they advertise. And I've heard from numerous people, whether they do this professionally, they test these products, or they are students in a classroom doing it as a school project, they've shown that various products might have actually zero spores. So you really need to be cautious as a gardener, as a farmer, permaculturalist, what have you, to make sure you're buying from a reputable company. Um, so I'll leave it up to the listener to, to do their own research um, and, and follow the instructions and just try to bring these fungi in. From there, you're trying to minimize, uh, as I say, tillage and, and, and chemical inputs. And part of that is, is fertilizer inputs. Now, this might seem counterintuitive. But one of the major categories of these fungi are known as the arbuscular mycorrhizae. And they, they tend to not want to form, or rather the plant will not want to form the association if it's being over-fertilized because it doesn't need the fungus. So part of their incorporation is actually lowering your phosphorus and nitrogen inputs a bit so that their relationship establishes and, and the fungus can actually do the work and provide the benefits, which will come uh, through its scavenging for nutrients and, and boosting the, the plant's health. Um, so that's, you know, really just a, a, a short answer to a very, very large question. I recently did a, 
seven day workshop on soil fungi with another teacher and seven days wasn't enough um, to cover all that we could say about soil fungi and their importance. But the mycorrhizal fungi are, are really one of the greatest places to start because there's the most research really around them. Uh, they're some of the easiest to work with and incorporate into you know food production. Um, but then what comes along with that is also the, the good soil management and, and understanding what they need to survive. Wow, that's amazing. And um, <laughs> just the implications of, of having so much more, not only that you can fit into a class of that size, but I can only imagine how much more there is to learn. Like you said, um, soil science being kind of a black box and we're only starting to scratch the surface and there may be plenty of things we, we might never understand gives a little bit of a window into the complexity of the life forms and the relationships in what we often kind of look over as being dirt and, and not understanding or appreciating for the complexity of how the nutrient delivery systems and the microbiome within the soil really is essential to all the other functions that we do in permaculture or all it has ripples all throughout the rest of society, I would imagine. Well, yeah, they say that the, the biology in soil, uh, forget the exact numbers, but might be something, you know, I, I forget exactly equivalent to the biomass above ground or, or significant portion of that and that really the the soil ecosystem really be, because of the way it functions in such harmony could almost be seen as an an organism unto itself sort of in the way that our body is a whole community of other microbes all functioning in coordination the soil is so complex there's so many dynamics which is why it's so hard to study um but yet it's obviously it works it works very well um and it breathes and it and it transforms nutrients and it transmutes them and it purges toxins like our lymph system and it moves nutrients around like our circulatory system and a lot of these functional roles are performed primarily by fungi they really are sort of the the backbone the connective tissue the the uh, arterial system the, the nervous system um, in some respects and how they coordinate the environment um you know they they perform so many of these these structural organizational and uh, successful roles that enable not just soil to exist and persist but but really life on earth um, especially terrestrial earth and you know we're only beginning to to realize that and then when you really take a step back for me one of the greatest points of even thinking about this and studying it was actually sort of meditating on it for a moment and letting it sink in. And this was years ago and really trying to think about when I go into an environment, what are all the roles that a fungus is doing when I step? And when I look at a tree, that tree is filled with fungi throughout its entirety, uh, doing all kinds of things we don't even understand. Uh, it's really a fungal world that we live in, but it's masked by these things we call animals and plants uh, that we that have taken our attention for so long. Mm, yeah, that is so cool. So, hey, let's jump up one step or maybe two steps here in the food chain and talk about another area in which fungi really exceed, and that's medicine making and nutrition for humans. I know you mentioned that you know we've been cultivating mushrooms and using them for nutritional benefits and, and as medicine for a long time, but we seem to be getting into a place where we understand exactly how they work a lot better. Could you talk a little bit on that subject? Uh, well, as far as nutrition goes, uh, fungi, mushrooms specifically, are um, generally can be seen as sort of a superfood or functional food is the more technical term, where they are highly nutritious 
um, and at the same time have compounds that have medicinal benefit. So on the nutritional end, they're generally quite high in protein. Some species can be relatively, basically on par with meat by dry wheat in their protein content. Uh, a lot of mushrooms ha are complete protein, so they have all the essential amino acids. They tend to be quite high in trace minerals, depending on what they were grown on. Um, and they all produce varying degrees of vitamin D. Fungi in their tissue have a compound that's similar to our uh, cholesterol, but it actually performs similar to the melanin in our skin in that when UV light hits it, it converts into uh, vitamin D, if you will. A pre it's a precursor. So uh, they can be quite high in this important compound that a lot of us lack from being indoors and wearing a lot of clothing. Um, so they're really nutritious really all around. There's really, they're, and they're low in fat, uh, which isn't necessarily a good thing depending on how you look at it. But uh, that's really the only maybe drawback is they're low in fat because we need fat. Um, on the medicinal end, the, the importance of medicinal mushrooms has been known for millennia. The oldest evidence of humans consuming mushrooms intentionally comes from almost 19,000 years ago. And it's debatable whether they were consumed for food or for medicine or otherwise. Um, but I would think that even if they were only consumed for food within a thousand years or less thereafter, uh, somebody would have realized that they also get a sort of health benefit from working from eating mushrooms. And that's just my conjecture. So, so our knowledge of medicinal mushrooms goes back probably quite far, much farther than we currently uh, sort of recognize, which is usually based on uh, ancient Chinese documents. And even in those documents from roughly four and a half thousand years ago, fungi are highly revered. Certain mushrooms, rather, are really at the top tier of traditional Chinese medicine, uh, the pharmacopoeia. You know, they have thousands of ingredients today and still the number one sort of the top of the list is the reishi mushroom. It's considered the king of all herbs. Um, the supreme mushroom of immortality, 10,000-year mushroom, etc. So it's a really profound mushroom. And, and nowadays, the research and the science has been able to validate what thousands of years of anecdotal evidence has, has claimed. Uh, for one, these mushrooms, certain ones especially, produce unique compounds that, uh, by and large, do have uh, certain specific actions on the body. Um, this varies by species and there's variables in there, but generally speaking, some of the most in interesting compounds are high weight sugars in the cell walls of the mushrooms that, uh, stimulate our immune system. Basically give it a workout is one way to think about it and, and turn it on, um, without wearing it out. And this has been found to potentially increase uh, say longevity after chemotherapy and radiation treatments, which really suppress the immune system. And so these mushrooms and their extracts, uh, have been commonly prescribed in, in say Japan for decades as a really viable and important immune support for these more detrimental therapies that really compromise the immune system. And that's a, that's a pretty good example. Um, you know, and then another really big and fascinating, quite a, a really popular one these days is lion's mane mushroom, which has unique compounds called hericinones and aranacines that stimulate our body's production of what's called nerve growth factor. And the outcome of that is essentially helping our nervous system regenerate to varying degrees, uh, potentially breaking up the, the plaques associated with Alzheimer's is one, one thought, uh, helping build the myelin insulation around our neurons. Um, and this has, you know, really profound implications for, for all kinds of mental uh, health issues, but also just generally uh, for the healthy person, you know, having a more active but 
uh, targeted thinking process, et cetera. So it's a pretty popular uh, supplement in, in regards to mushrooms, I'd say these days is reishi and, and lion's mane. And another popular one is, is uh, cordyceps because it's also been long known for its uh, energy boosting properties. This is kind of ancient Taoist medicine. Um, those are really some of the most popular ones. I can talk about many others. Um, and they all vary. And it's, okay, of course, it's quite its own fascinating subject to, to explore. Absolutely. Now, could you talk about one of the areas of mycology that I'm personally really excited about, and that's its capacity to rehabilitate damaged and toxic ecosystems. I know there have been some recent advancements in discovering what different uh, fungi can do in these cases. Can you talk a little bit about those? Well, yeah. So so this is what I was uh, kind of getting at earlier uh, to some degree with their microremediation. And that's one aspect of this larger uh, ability, if you will, for fungi to help enhance or help increase the, the rate of regeneration in an environment. I like to always point out that, you know, when, a, when, when nature is, is hurt in the eyes of humans, whether it's by our own acts or by a natural disaster, uh, given enough time, it will come back. It'll life, you know, has a way and it might not be the same as it was before, but you know, it's not going to stay barren rock forever. It might take a long time. Often in those in those instances, fungi are you know some of the pioneers in, in enabling life to come back. And if we do nothing, it might take centuries or millennia, but eventually something will establish a new ecology. So what we can do with our skill set today, the the later latest advancements in cultivating and, and better understanding fungi is basically speed up that process. And this can come in many different forms depending on what the impact has been to the environment. Um, you know, the, the one I gave before was say there's been a chemical spill. There is that, that strong possibility that we can incorporate certain fungi that have been shown in the lab to break down that same chemical uh, and basically consume it as food and, and leave behind non-toxic or hopefully less toxic byproducts in the process. Um, there's other, you know, the mycorrhizal fungi are another example where they're not necessarily uh, breaking down a compound, though they, they can. There's, al there's also been evidence of that. But they might just be supporting plants that you're establishing in, say, a disturbed habitat. You're trying to re rebuild uh, something similar to the previous ecology. Those plants you're bringing in need to establish. The fungi will help that process. Um, if there's debris, if there's organic debris, you can chip that up and, and feed it to mushrooms, and they can just break that down and build the soil quicker. Right. So really, we help speed up the decomposition that would others, otherwise take decades. Um, you know, really, it's it's again kind of goes back to the uh, a lot of the the systems and, and protocols that have been developed for bioremediation or just general habitat restoration uh, are are good and they've worked quite well. But generally speaking, they often don't have a strong emphasis or sometimes a, a complete lack of emphasis or even a recognition of the importance of fung fungi in a given design. It's what I always like to say is just, we just need to add that fungal layer on top of everything else or mix it in or maybe make it as the foundation of everything else and support the other steps to make it a much more holistic methodology. Um, because really when it comes down to it, the, the methods of cultivation aren't so difficult. This is something, you know, for people that are new to it, it might sound like a large new topic, hard to wrap your head around. And, and it certainly is to some respects, but at the end of the day, actually cultivating fungi, understanding what they need to grow. It's about as simple as plants, if you will, you know, we put them in the soil, they need some nutrients and water light, and they'll more or less grow. And there's a lot of ways to do that better. 
but you'll get some sort of result. And same with mushrooms, if you will. Um, in, a, in an outdoor setting where things have been disturbed, you know, there's only so much you can control and so many, only so many things you want to control. Uh, what, what, what comes along with it to do it, uh, to be most successful is just to try to have a good design and to uh, effectively execute what you're trying to do in the get go. Um, so that everything rolls out as smoothly as possible. Nature takes its course. And really all you need to understand for the fungi is what they need to grow, which again is primarily food, water, uh, nice, comfortable space and, and, uh, not too hot, not too cold. Yeah, it certainly seems like this is one of those practices like so many others where you can go down the rabbit hole as far as you want and get very, very technical and very complex, but the basics are quite approachable to most people as well, correct? Exactly. Yeah, that's, you know, for the micro-remediation especially, uh, this is a topic that, like I said, you know, 10 years ago got me so excited and got me kind of advocating that everybody can't, should do this because we you kind of everybody can to varying degrees. Um, but then what I've come to realize over the years is that, that that's kind of a little bit intimidating for people because it kind of assumes you already know how to say cultivate mushrooms, which most people don't. And you got to know how to do that to, to actually do the next step, which is the remediation. So, you know, I can teach you how to grow mushrooms in just a few hours and really the extension of, of a given skill set to say, how do you, how would you apply that same skill to a polluted pile of soil, an oily pile of soil? It's really not, it's the same skill, it's the same steps and same concepts throughout. But what I nowadays encourage is just doing it, like I said, a good design. So you save yourself time, but also to try to add to our knowledge, because unfortunately not a lot of this has been done in the field and um, it's easy to do. It's just not enough people um, are doing it for whatever reason, you know, kind of it's intimidating or it's just kind of uh, not common. Um, but it is certainly approachable. And then marrying that with, say, good testing so you actually know what your what your effect is. And there's a lot of details there. But the, the, the essence of it is, um, you know, you don't really need uh, high degrees of technical expertise. You don't need a lab really elaborate equipment to do these these foundational skills of rehabilitating an environment and helping it regenerate with with fungi. Fantastic. Now, I'd like to go back to one of the things that you were talking about earlier, and that's how fungi are nature's chemists. You said that fungi can fill a niche sort of by managing waste products and pr or transforming them into benign materials or even other useful products. Could you give us some examples of this? Well, I, I mean... It, it's kind of what we do in all cultivation, really. The, you know, on the broad scale, so much of our food system is missing major uh, link in the chain. I guess that would make it a, a closed chain, a ch closed circle chain, um, which is mushroom cultivation. So roughly, you know, depending on the the crop, eighty to ninety percent of a given crop is. If it's not composted, which hopefully it is, it might be burned or hauled off of the property. Which is kind of crazy to anybody that's interested in compost and soil. You know that that doesn't oh, make any sense. I can't tell you that. how crazy that drives me. I live in a region where it's slash and burn at the end of every harvest season. Just breaks my heart. <laughs> yeah, but but all that material could probably, depending on the crop, but most crops, this is true. You can use that to grow mushrooms. So you can you can grow a whole new crop in the winter months when you're probably not growing many plants. So it's a great sort of uh, pairing to the plant season. The winter, colder season is great for growing mushrooms on all the waste of the plants you just grew in the summer, in the fall. Um, and so we could have so many more mushrooms. It, this would lower the cost. It would increase our health and, and a lot of jobs and all this kind of stuff could come from just spreading that skill. 
And that's really what, you know, for the small scale grower or whatever scale grower, um, you're usually using some sort of waste product. And so this is sort of what fungi do in the environment. They take, they, they're decomposers. They take the things that need to be broken down to create new soil for new life. Um, and so that's the fall leaves, the, the twigs, what have you. Um, for the home grower, you're using other types of low cost and hopefully free if you can get it, um, agricultural or even urban waste streams. So common things include, say, coffee grounds and cardboard in a city environment or maybe straw, uh, which is not quite a waste because there's other uses for that, but it's not that expensive, to, say, sawdust, which can be relatively inexpensive where I am. It comes from the, the lumber mills. It's a sort of waste product. and But to things like corn cobs and peanut shells and pistachio shells and uh, cotton seed holes and other, other agricultural waste, uh, coffee holes, coffee husks, rather, things that really have no agricultural value. Yeah, that's something we have can a lot be of used <laughs> After coffee season, there's just yeah. an endless amount of pulp. We're starting to use it in our compost and also as chicken feed, but it's fascinating to think that we could use that for mushrooms as well, certainly in the seasons to come. Yeah, so th that's really, to grow mushrooms, there's some sort of standard recipes we use when you have, when you live in, say, you know, a given city in North America where most ingredients can be accessible. But when you go, if you want to cut costs or maybe you live somewhere more remote, you're just going to look for whatever common waste streams are around you that you can get kind of consistently. And from them, you develop a recipe that your mushrooms are going to like. And there's some, you know, trial and error in there basically. But once you figure that out, you can grow mushrooms on almost anything, really. I mean, it kind of, and it's a little bit of a hyperbole, but it's also kind of true because really they've been shown to grow. Certain mushrooms can grow on over 200 different agricultural waste streams. Um, some mushrooms are very aggressive, very ravenous, and will eat almost anything you put in their path, uh, as long as the, the nutrients are balanced, you know, sort of the, not quite NPK, it's not the same as plants, but similar to that. Wow. Now, I know that we're just kind of touching on the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all the uses of fungi. What are some of the lesser known applications that you're exploring or starting to research yourself? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I think one of the uh, well, well, I think one of the more interesting things that's come out in a few years is one more obscure sort of application of cultivation is uh, the study was maybe th three or four years ago at this point, where they took the tissue from the cap of a portobello and they py pyrolyzed it, like when you make biochar, and they were able to use that burnt tissue or that pyrolyzed tissue as the anode in a in a battery and it was basically able to store charge better than the normal anodes that you use in a lithium ion battery and they were actually seeing that it could hold more charge over time rather than less charge which is how the anodes that's why your batteries kind of run out is they can't hold charge anymore um and so that is crazy and so it has this that's amazing really i had not heard that one before if mycology yeah, is on the so, forefront of battery technology, this would definitely take it into a whole new stratosphere of exploration. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, and there's actually in sort of similar, but different, um, in the cultivation realm, there's been some good studies come out in the last handful of years, especially from Asia showing that when we electrocute or sort of shock mushrooms with basically a simulated lightning strike, we can double or triple their normal yields. And so that's an interesting, not really application of mushroom cultivation, but way to enhance our cultivation is through electric, electrical shocking, which seems 
you know, counterintuitive maybe, but it's been shown to work time and time again, which that is really is so cool. intriguing in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so when, when I take that actually a step further, one of the things that I'm most interested in, perhaps in, in similar realms is that, and I talk about this in my book uh, to a good degree to sort of explain my, my line of thought, but there's a lot of ways that fungi grow that we cannot explain. And there's actually quite a lot of mystery around just even basic fundamental gr uh, growth processes. And I try to actually resolve some of these issues by bringing in uh, the, the question or the notion that perhaps fungi are communicating in their growth via electrical signals, which is not really something we typically think about biology. Usually we're looking at chemical signals. But really in the last less than a decade, it's been shown and, and, and uh, recognized and accepted that between bacterial cells and our own, uh, our own cells, there are, along with chemical signals, electrical forms of signals that are used as communication. And so what I talk about in my book is that if that is the case, and this would help resolve a lot of this sort of un unexplainable growth process, uh, perhaps someday we can learn to sort of decipher that code and maybe – uh, not exactly like communicate with the mushrooms, but maybe like in the movie Avatar, tap into their webs in the environment and get a reading on what they're what they're communicating about the environment to some degree. Um, it sounds pretty science fiction, but I think that the it's definitely plausible. Um, now, the degree through which to which we'll be able to decipher it, uh, you know, is yet to be seen. Certainly, yeah. Like the implications of that are incredible. It would mean. That, that's essentially the neurological network of the earth, or at least the crust of the earth. Exactly. Well, it's not just the crust because, you know, there's there's examples of certain fungi communicating in, uh, between each other uh, in ways that shouldn't occur and based on other types of biology, other, other organisms on earth. And especially with this sort of external signaling that we're not even really looking for. Now, if, if it is existing in the soil – could it be that the fungi throughout all the plants uh, and all plant tissues are permeated by what are known as endophytic fungi, fungi that basically form the, the, the skeleton of a plant. It's like a, a hidden, hidden system inside of all plants. Are they, are they communicating the same way now as a whole or all the fungi in the environment sort of telephoning uh, throughout each other in this way? Um, I mean, it's something I think about sometimes and I have no idea, but there's certainly think that there's it's a question to to follow up on not just entirely dismiss absolutely wow uh that's definitely piqued my curiosity to learn a lot more and and i hope so as well for a lot of our listeners now i know you're very passionate about the education of mycology and promoting awareness of the fungal world and that you're now underway with a very ambitious project of creating an online school to do just that can you tell us a bit about Mycologos? Is it Mycologos or Mycologos? Yeah, it's Mycologos. Mycologos. Um, and all of the education programs that you're building through there. Yeah, so, you know, I've been studying this topic for, like I said, 16 years, and it's primarily been a labor of love. Uh, I took a little bit of, I took one class in college, the one class that was offered, uh, mostly on identification, and but really, I, through the school I went to, there was very limited offerings, and this is a common theme. Most people I meet who are especially really engaged with mycology want to take it further than just, say, foraging or even cultivation. There's really not much out there. There are a few, certainly, master's programs and even some others, actually not really an undergraduate, dedicated undergraduate program uh, uh, yet. I think one student just recently from University of Wisconsin was the first undergrad to get a degree 
in mycology. This way, I saw this on Facebook recently. Um, so, so it kind of speaks to to the glut of access. Um, now there are better programs, or there's more programs at a given university. Some have you know more dedicated departments. Most universities, however, don't even have a mycology department. So it's a really inaccessible science in in the truest sense, and it's not. Uh, it's really not an exaggeration. So. Most, if the listener has never really thought about it, you know, you probably never learned anything about mycology in all of your education, or if you learned anything in environmental science or in biology, it might have just been for one day or one short paragraph in the textbook kind of thing. It's a very, really, really overlooked field. So, knowing this and knowing how important and fascinating everything it is, uh, I've tried over the years to provide different ways to to share my knowledge through doing events, through doing workshops. Uh, wrote a quite a large book the other year. Um, and I still have felt and realized that it's just not quite enough that people need better, you know, we all need structure. We need sort of guided mentorship. Um, and really in essence, it's a, a school and a, and a dedicated format. And so that's exactly what the, what Michael logos is. Um, so we just successfully crowdfunded it in December and now the throughout the year, what's the plan is, is to produce a series of uh, over a dozen different video courses that will cover topics from fungal ecology to cultivation skills to varying depths to microremediation to varying depths, uh, medicine making, uh, the cultural history of fungi, which we haven't really talked about, and and fungal ferments and, and quite a number of other things. So it's this, and that's really just phase one. Those are kind of the most I think engaging and accessible topics for people to. Uh, sink their teeth into and actually do something with and the the hope down the future or in the future is to have more online offerings but also starting to do uh, in-person courses which I've already been doing in various forms for a number of years but doing more of them in different forms both in Portland here and, and perhaps around the world um, and so there's really nothing like this that that exists um, as I say some universities have departments and programs which are great but they're usually quite limited um, this is going to be something uh, quite different, you know, in, in some ways inspired by permaculture community and, and PDCs and things, but, uh, but sort of, you know, in, in inspired by many other educational infrastructures that I've seen, but sort of its own format, uh, just due to what the science needs, you know, really to, to be able to provide a full scope of what I know and, and also the, the co-teachers I plan to bring in in the future, uh, you know, it really needs to be a multi-year program for people that want to go deep if they want, you know, in that respect, or breaking off the segments for, for folks who just want certain components. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing when those educational courses come out. That's definitely the type of thing that I would love to dive deeper into as well. You've certainly piqued my curiosity even more than before this. Now, before I let you go, could you tell us a little bit about how people can get in contact with you and your organization? If you've got any educational events coming up, how they can find those as well, and how they can follow your progress with this new project of Michael Logos. Sure. Well, they can they can uh, stay in touch in two ways. So, uh, MichaelLogos.world is the website for the new school. Um, we're sort of just having finished the Kickstarter at the time of doing the recording here. Um, we're kind of re going to be redoing the website in the next couple of weeks and sort of touching it up. Uh, putting some more information on there about how to sort of pre-register for the courses because it's they're going to take all year to produce. That was what the Kickstarter was for. It was for uh, funding production. Um, and But you can join our email list and just sort of follow them there and social media as well. 
but you can also check out the other organization that I've been involved with for over a decade, which is called Radical Mycology, which is more fungal advocacy, mycology advocacy, um, and we do various events through there, and it's just more you know, for building the culture and kind of community around the topic. And the website for that is radicalmycology.com. Um, there's an email list there as well. And we're on social media. Both the handles are Michael Logos and Rad Mycology, R-A-D-M-Y-C-O-L-O-G-Y. And so you should be able to find us kind of wherever on the major platforms. And yeah, just keep up to date. There's nothing major planned uh, as of yet. I will be doing an event um doing a workshop down in LA as a part of the LA mushroom festival in February. I'll be in Australia at the end of January, uh, for some events, but, uh, nothing, nothing huge planned currently kind of laying low post post crowdfunding. <laughs> I can imagine that must've been a big effort. Well, congratulations on reaching and actually surpassing your goal. And I'm very keen to see how this develops in the future and continue to do more research on mycology. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Peter. It was a real pleasure to have you here. I hope we can do a follow-up because, I, frankly, I have a ton more questions after hearing your answers already. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. All right. We'll be in touch soon. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.